Um, hey, if you have a Bible, open it to Nehemiah chapter 5. That's in the Old Testament. Kind of a small little book about midway through the Old Testament. For the past five or six weeks, we have been preaching through the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we're about halfway through. We're going to handle all of chapter 5 today. And to catch you up with where we are, just as a little summary, because I realize that some of you, this may be your first day, or maybe you didn't catch some of the previous messages. And why are we preaching on Nehemiah? Because it is incredibly applicable to us today. It seems a little obscure, just this small 13-chapter book in the Old Testament that's basically about a building project where this man leads a group of people to go rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So why is that so important, and what does it have to do with us today? Well, the whole storyline of the Old Testament is really quite simple. In fact, it's the story of how God is still working in us today. God created everything, not just good, but very good. And as the pinnacle of his creation, he created us people, and we willfully rebelled against God. And that that rebellion brought in death and judgment and punishment. And in response to the willing rebellion of all mankind, not just Adam and Eve, but in Romans 5, it says that all of us in some strange, mysterious way participated in that. And we have proven that because there's not a person that's been born other than Jesus who has lived anything other than a rebellious life. The the Bible says that God, in response to that, begins to work through his people. And he calls this man named Abram in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, who then he eventually renames Abraham. And through this man, Abraham, he promises a couple things. He promises him a piece of land. He promises him lots of kids. In fact, he says, your offspring will outnumber the stars of the sky. And he also promises him blessing because this one man and this group of people that would come from this man are not the only group of people on earth that God cares about. He cares about everybody. But he says, through you, Abraham, I will create a people and I will bring you into a land and I will make a city from which I will bless all the people of the earth. And so the Old Testament is basically a story of that group of people, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israel, that is God's people that he has chosen to be his light to all the people of the earth. And these people go through, just like we do, rebellion and then times of repentance where they're back right with God. And then they rebel again and then they, and then they, they get right again. And it's just this, this, this sort of these peaks and valleys where they go through. And so that's our story. That's the Old Testament is a narrative of what it is to be somebody that's struggling to live for God in uh, our own rebellion. And so eventually God raises up a king named David, and David has this, this vision to build a city for God, the city of God, Jerusalem, and he does build this city. And he has this dream to build a temple. In fact, God tells him to build this place and that in this temple, in this city, this holy city, that in this place God would come and he would literally tabernacle and be with his people. Not just for those people, that so that, just like he promised Abraham, he could bless all the peoples of the earth. Well, David dies before he can build this city, but his son Solomon does build this city, build, or builds the temple, and it is an incredibly beautiful place. And so God is there in this temple, blessing the Hebrew people, and then likewise blessing all the peoples of the earth. But they again rebel, and there's this king named Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., who takes the Jewish people captive and destroys the city and destroys the temple. 
And then 141 years go by where the city that God had said will be my city, that I bless all the peoples of the earth, and the temple that God had said that I will dwell in this place and it will be the pinnacle of my, my residence here on earth and in this place I will bless everybody on the earth was destroyed. And so God raises up a few men, Ezra and Zerubbabel, and in our sense, what we're dealing with today, a man named Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah's mission is then to rebuild the city. And so Nehemiah is on an incredibly important mission to rebuild this city so that God's will to work through these people for the sake of all of the earth that he would make his name great would continue. Likewise, We are people not just coming to church, but we are trying to build a city, a church within a city so that through the city of Crosspoint and through the city of the places like the Ridge, God can bless all the peoples of the earth. And so our theme is a people on mission together for Jesus. And up to this point, we've read about Nehemiah where he has received this burden from God. He asked the king, a pagan king. This pagan king gave him favor, incredible favor. And then he begins the mission, and he begins to face outside opposition from people that don't want him to do well. He, even in the face of that opposition, he begins to build the wall. But now in chapter 5, which we'll read today, he begins to face not just external opposition and challenge and doubt, but he begins to face internal strife. And here's the big idea today. I only have one point. You don't got to write anything down. This is all we're going to deal with today. And is that uh, I think that what is the greatest challenge for places like Crosspoint and for churches like the Ridge, in fact, every church, every group of people that want to live for Jesus is not some external challenge. It is how we live together in grace and community, smelling like Jesus so that others would know that what we believe is true. Our greatest challenge is how we actually live together, and we're going to talk about that today. All right, you ready? Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's go. This is, uh, we're going to read through it pretty quickly, and um, then I'm going to make one point, and then we're going to read some New Testament passages, and I hope and I pray that the Spirit of God would just sit on us today, would just sit on us and move us and transform us. And before I read, let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, thank you that we can gather. This is not just another Sunday in the South, in the Bible Belt, where we are going through the motions of rote tradition and just going to church because that's what church people do. God, would you shake us out of that and would you help us not be religious, proud, arrogant people today, but would you, would you help us to settle our hearts on what you want to say to us today would you with precision and clarity work through me i am a crooked stick my life is full of hypocrisy and contradictions and error but in spite of that would you show great grace and would you draw a straight line today with a crooked stick and then god would you help us would you make clear this one point to us today that there's something much bigger than just than just being an individual Christian or understanding salvation or, or coming to church. But you call us to live together in such a way that it becomes a reflection of your glory. It becomes an aroma of Christ to a dying world that desperately needs to see a community that isn't perfect, but that is full of grace and full of Jesus. 
So would you help us with that today? And as Sarah has so beautifully played, would you help us to remember that great is thy faithfulness? And would you transform us today? Make this not a silly, boring, little self-help, moralistic message, but let the person and work of Jesus rise to the top and let us all examine our lives in view of the cross and the resurrection and the power of Jesus. And I pray in that great name. Amen. All right, let's go. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Football season has started, and um, I am aware that some of you were up late. And so um, I'm going to keep you awake. All right, let's go. I'm also aware that we're reading through a rather obscure portion of the Old Testament. And so, um, but I'm up to the challenge. All right, let's go. Let's lean forward. Nehemiah chapter 5. All right, so he has faced external opposition. And now they're in the middle of the project about to be finished with rebuilding the wall. And now, you know, he's starting to get report that some of the church folks are starting to get mad at each other. And, and I don't know, I've never heard anything like that before. I'm totally unfamiliar with that situation. But let's read about Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And then there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children are as their children. In other words, we're, we're the same people here. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Let's stop there and kind of explain what's going on in these first few verses. What's happening is... is the Jewish people are still in captivity. They were in Babylonian captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonian Empire. He conquered the Jewish people, destroyed the temple, and then God raised up another pagan king to overthrow the unfavorable uh, pagan king. Nebuchadnezzar raised up another pagan king named Cyrus. No relation to Miley. And Cyrus is favorable to God's people now and is letting them go back. And a couple kings later, Artaxerxes is now in charge. But the Jewish people are captive people. They do not rule themselves. And these captive Persian people are oppressing the Jews. They're taxing them. It would be kind of like we, I mean, I'm a child of the 70s and I grew up. I think if most of you grew up in that decade, you just grew up scared of Russia. Didn't you just grow up? And then they had that terrible uh, movie, Red Dawn, and like the day after. And once you just couldn't sleep for like seven weeks after that. And I, mean, I just remember, I'm like a little sleeping with a bayonet under my pillow in case a Russian knocked on my door or something. It was just ridiculous. But anyway, or maybe it was ridiculous. I don't know. But, I, uh, but, but there's, just think if like the Russians would have come and we would have been captive to them. And then they're... They're treating us poorly. They're charging us very high taxes. We're doing all of their labor. We, we, are, we are serving them. Okay, so that's terrible. That's tough. And that's the situation for the Jewish people. But now, even though that's still the situation, God moves on the heart of their king, Artaxerxes, who's this pagan Persian who's oppressing God's people, to at least be favorable to them in the sense that he allows them to go back and rebuild the city of God. I love that. Because a couple of things are going on here is that God is working on the heart of a pagan king. 
Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is as a water course in the hearts, in the hand of God. And we freak out because a Democrat or a Republican gets elected. God is bigger than American politics, but don't get me started because I'll go down a rabbit trail, which I'm, I don't want to do that. But so God moves on the heart of this king, and he sort of unwittingly finances the rebuilding of the city, which is God's will. But yet he's still treating them poorly, and now... He lets sort of the people kind of go back. And so they've had to raise money. The Jewish people have had to raise money somewhat to buy back some of the slaves from the Persians so that they could go work. And now what's happening is that Nehemiah is hearing that there are some Jewish nobles and rich people who are now taking advantage of the situation and, and buying back some of these poor people. Because what's happening is each individual Jewish family and person had to pay a tax to the Persian Empire. And the tax was so great, they weren't wealthy at all. There's a famine, they don't have work. The husbands are now working on the wall instead of farming the fields. And so there is a downturn. I mean, this is, this is a recession times 10. And there's a famine. I mean, it is a difficult economic situation while in captivity. And so the average Jewish family could not pay back the Persian uh, tax that they had. And so some of the more wealthy Jewish people were now taking advantage of the economic situation of their own brothers and were giving them loans and charging them high interest rates. And in some cases, taking their own brothers and sisters of the poorer people amongst them and using them as slaves. And Nehemiah hears about this and he goes ballistic. And so that's the situation in verses 1 through 5. Verse 6, Nehemiah, I love it because he's not some pansy Christian dude. He just, he just gets mad. And I can't wait to preach Nehemiah 13 because Nehemiah pulls people's hair out and kicks them. And I just can't wait to get to that. I'm not going I mean, to do that hopefully to anybody. But verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, and I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against them and the nobles and the officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. In other words, you are doing the very thing that our captives are doing to us and making the situation even worse for your own people. You're treating each other like dirt, and you're, you're killing us. You're killing us. And in verse the end of verse 7, he says, And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, We, are, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. One other thing I love about this is just a point, not much to do with what we are talking about today generally. But Nehemiah doesn't have secret meetings. Uh, he gets everybody together and he says, What's up? I mean, he, he lays it all out on the table. One of the things that is most taxing about community is that everybody kind of wants to have, you know, meetings. Like, well, this guy said this, and oh, this guy, this guy treated me wrong. And, uh, but Nehemiah gets everybody together, and he goes, what's up? What's going on here? Let's get everything out on the table. And some people are going to have red faces, and some people are going to get angry. But we're going to solve this gig right here, right now. And at the end of verse 8, it says, they were silent and could not find a word to say. Verse 9, so I said... The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and to prevent the taunts 
of the nations of our enemies. In other words, remember who we are. Remember, we're not just building a little city for ourselves here. What's at stake here is not just our economic viability, but what's at stake here is the glory of God. Because remember, God wants to rebuild this city and form this people so that through us, God can bless all the people of the earth. And so likewise for us, us being a healthy grace-filled church that treats each other well what's 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 at stake here is something bigger than just our own little interior situation it's it's are we a place that god can actually be glorified in our city and in our region and so that provokes nehemiah's anger verse 10 moreover i and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain let us abandon this exacting of interest Nehemiah even actually it seems to indicate there in verse 10 he says I, I'm actually part of this to some degree he's a humble leader you know he's not some shady dude and gets on people he actually confesses some of his own involvement in this verse 11 return to them this very day their fields their vineyards their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money grain wine and oil that you have been exacting from them verse 12 then they said we will restore these and require nothing from them we will do as you say. So evidently, Nehemiah's speech was pretty effective. <laughs> he probably had bulging eyeballs and, uh, eyeballs and, you know, just bloodshot veins and his neck was red and he was mad and he was kicking dirt and he was spitting and there was a splash zone in the first couple rows and, I mean, he was upset and they were, I mean, there wasn't any, yeah, but, I mean, they were kind of like, okay, <laughs> we'll do exactly as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And listen to this. This is, this is Nehemiah taking it to another level here in gravity and seriousness. Verse 13, it says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. What's going on there is Nehemiah is just saying, you know what? I'm going to do an object lesson here for all the people. And I'm going to take off my coat. And their little outward garment, a lot of times they would carry stuff with it, like little personal belongings. So he had his keys and his wallet. And he had, you know, his Blackberry. He had all his gear with him, all the stuff that you carry around. And, and so he's got his thing. And he's saying, you know what? This is how serious I am about this. If any of you goes back on the covenant that you were making with me and the community today, I pray that God would do this to you. And he takes off his robe with all of his stuff stashed in it. And he empties it out. And, and everybody sees his personal belongings fall to the ground. And he says, if, you, if we go back on this word, I pray that God would do that to you. And everybody's sitting there evidently with their tail between their legs saying, Oh, snap. Nehemiah is serious, and so is God. And, and they, they relent to his, his demands. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. I just want to stop here and say, before we get into this here, we've got a few more verses to read. Then I'm going to just make one point and read some passages out of the New Testament. I want you to get in, like, don't let this just be, I know this is probably the first time maybe ever or in a long time that maybe you've read Nehemiah chapter 5, and so you're maybe not that familiar with this part of the story, and you can just read it and say, oh, yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, this guy got mad. Wow. Ooh, good Bible story. Ah. But I mean, let's get in. This is a real event. The Old Testament is, it actually happened. And if you struggle with doubt about the Old Testament and about the truth of the Scriptures, 
I want to refer you to Jesus. Jesus is the best Old Testament scholar I know. And in his teachings in the New Testament, he affirms all of the teachings of the Old Testament. In John chapter 5, he says that all of the Old Testament speaks of him. In Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, when he appears, appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he says he teaches to them from all of the Old Testament about himself. And so Jesus is affirming that this is more than just a story. This is historical record. Nehemiah actually did this. And I want us to get in that scene and realize that there is a leader, a regular guy named Nehemiah, who is evidently very angry. In fact, he is, he is berserk. He has called everybody together and he's shouting at people. He's not, he's not letting this pass by. This is serious. This is solemn. The, 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 the future of the nation, not just the building project, but the very future of what God wants to do through them is at stake, not because Sanballat or some of the other people that we read in the other chapters are going to raise some army against them, but because the people within the circle are treating each other like dirt. And that gets Nehemiah evidently far angrier than Sanballat and some of the external enemies did in the previous chapters. And so Nehemiah is moved to great anger because the people that are supposed to be the people that reflect, reflect God's glory are treating each other poorly. I think we should take it that seriously. So let's keep going. Verse 14. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. Listen, remember the building project? Remember when he went to Artaxerxes and he said, um, pagan ruler king, says, I would, like, um, I would like a free vacation. I'd like you to pay for all of this. I'd like for you to send your army and I'd like some time off. Ended up being 12 years. Asked for vacation to do a personal project and then asked for the company to fund it. And then when your boss says, how long are you going to be gone? 12 years. <laughs> Okay, cool. Twelve years. Neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. So in other words, Artaxerxes, the Persian king, is giving Nehemiah, he's appointing him as governor over his own people and giving him evidently some sort of nice benefit there. But he is, he is saying no to that so that he doesn't live in luxury while his people are living in a difficult economic time. I could at this point... I could at this point go down the road that I often go when I bash the prosperity preachers on TV, but I wouldn't do that because a few of you would be compelled to send me an email, and I would also have to stick a fork in my eye because it makes me so mad, so I won't do that. But the point is, not your email, the prosperity preachers. But the point is, is that somehow in America we have reduced the gospel and in some cases, Christian ministry to personal gain. <laughs> and isn't it ironic that the people that are raising money for poor children in third world countries are dressed up in Italian suits and cufflinks and drive places in Rolls Royces and have jets and four million dollar homes. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. And we're going to get to how we should handle money a little bit later because Nehemiah talks about this. And there's a principle in the New Testament. God, where am I going? I got, you guys got me started on this. There's a principle in the New Testament that we should pay preachers decently. It says don't muzzle the ox. So in other words, let the preacher... Let the, no, that's in the Scriptures. It says let the preacher... I, I'm an ox. 
Don't muzzle the ox so that he can do his work in the field. So, so don't yoke the worker by paying him too little so that he can't plow the field. But I don't think that's the problem in America. It's certainly not the problem in this church. The problem in most of is, is, is just how ridiculously prosperity-driven a lot of people are. That's not even our problem, so I don't know why I'm getting into that. All right, emails. My email is um, it's brad at insightcrosspoint.com. You can spell that P-A-U-L at insightcrosspoint.com. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, never mind. Sorry. Okay, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I love this. Here's a humble leader. He cares more about the mission than he does about his own comfort. But I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. Verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, verse 17, there were, I love this too. There, there's so much in this. It's like just an obscure sentence. And there's so much truth and example in this from Nehemiah. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Look, if you're going to be a leader, you need to be hospitable. You need to be generous. People need to know you. You need to invite people into your life. Nehemiah invites people into his life besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us not just christians but he engages with other people who didn't necessarily know god verse 18 now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance yet for all this i did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people verse 19 remember for my good oh my god all that i have done for this people. So here's the one point that I want to make today, and then I'll make a couple applications, and we'll be done, and we'll respond in communion and worship and prayer and respond in that way. Here's the big idea today. The big idea is that our greatest challenge as a young church and as Christians is not some external thing. We've got some challenges. We went over them a couple weeks ago. We need our own building. We may be getting close on a place. We're looking at a few things. I know a lot of you wonder, what's going on? We've got a team of guys that are that are fervently looking for another location. We may be getting closer. There may be a couple weeks that I'll get up and say, hey, we think that this is a place and we'll get up and we'll go. Look, that's a challenge. Look, we need more leaders. We need, we need more people that are burdened for children's ministry. We're looking for a children's ministry. We need, we've got some external challenges. But guys, those, those are peripheral in comparison to what the true challenge is, is will we be a people who live together in such a grace-filled way that even as we rub each other wrong, we treat each other with such great kindness that it reflects the person and work of Jesus and then becomes an aroma that God uses to draw people to Christ. Our greatest challenge is not some external logistical thing, but whether or not as we grow, we will continue to insist that we be a grace-filled New Testament community that loves each other well. But there, as I see it, are many obstacles, but two that I want to point out to you today. There are two challenges. Number one, the challenge is just petty insecurities, petty insecurities. Let me read you a scripture in uh, Romans chapter 12. Petty insecurities just can absolutely kill biblical community. And I love the fact that as I preach this to you, I don't have any situation on my, in mind. I'm not subversively trying to bring some deal to, 
to, to light or it, through a sermon so that you will, that you will be convicted. Um, this is just something that is in the scriptures that we've come upon that we need to deal with and that will be great for us so that we keep this before us. This is what Paul says to the Romans. What a, what a great passage here. We're going to start in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. Look, I don't need to expand on this. I don't need to comment on this. These words from Paul, are, are, they stand alone and they go without explanation. Listen to this, Romans 12. Verse, that doesn't mean that in the future I might not preach a sermon on it. I'm just saying that for the purposes today, it's just so powerful. Let love be genuine. Verse 9, Romans chapter 12. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. What if our competitor, what if a culture was so pervasively gripped by the grace of Jesus that our competition was with each other to outdo one another in honor? Wow, what, what would that look like? Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What if, and I've said this before, what if we just created a zone here within the tribe of Crosspoint where who cares whether your house is clean or not? Who cares whether, glory, yeah. Who cares whether your kids have some, you know, nice gear to wear? Who cares? What if we just sort of loved each other because there was something greater going on in us? Remember, what's the mission? It's not just that we can come to church and have a good place to come, but so that through us, God can do something great in our city. And so what if we just, this pervasive hospitality and generosity just invaded us and we knew where each other lived and we actually occasionally went to each other's houses and we, we ate together and we prepared meals and we didn't really care about whether or not the food tasted good because what was rich was the fellowship, not the vittles. And what if we didn't buy salads in a bag? And we actually, ah, never mind, we prepared... I mean, we actually like prepared food together. We don't do that. Like we come and everything's dusted and then the food's ready. Beep, it's out. And then we eat. And Okay, bye. And then it's go, boom, what happened? What just happened? Did we just go to somebody's house for dinner? I don't know. I mean, come on. what if we like spend time together? Bless those, verse 14, who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. He's writing to a Christian community. So that means that there will be people in this room who will rub you the wrong way and who will talk bad about you. And what if when you heard about that secondhand by some friend who's kind of like the little busy butterfly social bee that sort of connects everybody in disharmony. What if when you heard that, you just said, ah, well, bless that person. You know, I just love them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What if we knew each other well enough to where we could celebrate in each other's victories and actually be glad for each other? And then we knew when we were struggling, and it wasn't a pride thing. We're like, like so often I'll hear, like, and people say, you know, I didn't want to say anything, but the past four months I've been struggling with this thing. And I'm like, ah, come on, man. Let's create a culture where we can be real with each other and actually cry together. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Like somebody told me the other day, I don't think it's true, but I want you to help me fight against this perception because a lot of times in some people's minds, perception is reality. In fact, I heard this on two different occasions from, from kind of outside sources. Somebody saying, hey, I kind of heard, yeah, Crosspoint, good church. I heard it's kind of clickish. And 
I, I'm glad there were no forks around because I would have grabbed it and I would have just started stabbing myself in the eye. And I'm like, oh, I mean, I, I, oh, thanks. You know, thank you. I don't know if you knew I was a pastor of that church, but yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> Thank, thanks, thanks for telling me. But you know what? This person was not being accusatory. They just heard that. They don't believe that. They were just saying that. And, I, you know, I was just like, I know that's not the case, but I know how perception can kind of carry on out of a place illegitimately. And so can you help me fight against that? Some of you are very rich and very good looking. Let's just be honest. All right. Uh, I'm Reynolds. <laughs> I didn't want to look at anybody in particular. No, but you know what? You know what? Here's, here's, this is my heart here. Listen to me, guys. You can intimidate people and you don't even know it. Really, you can, you know, it's just, this can be a hard crew to walk into. Some of you have not moved beyond friendship circles that you've had since you were a little child. You're not overtly sinning in any way. You're not looking down the nose intentionally at anybody. But you're satisfied with groupiness and just comfort. Like, really? Really, did God give you that? Did he give you that charisma? Did he make you beautiful so that you could hang around other beautiful people and dress your kids in little monogram stuff and ride around in SUVs and have coffee at all the cool places with the people that are just as insecure as you are? Or did he give you that so that you could leverage that in some way for the sake of the gospel. Come on. Come on. Like nobody in this room is intentionally sinning in that way. But unintentionally, I think it's something that we need to battle against and socially cross-pollinate. And let's just, you're all good looking and you're all rich, so I'm talking to everybody. (laughs) Let's get, let's get outside of ourselves and associate with people that we would not normally associate with. And guess what? That is hard, it's awkward, and it's really difficult. Welcome to New Testament Christianity. If possible, or verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Issue number one is petty insecurities. Issue number two, which I touched on, is just is just self-absorption due to ignorance. Let's not be that people. Okay? Let's not be that people. Let's not be the people that uh, that aren't necessarily arguing with each other because somebody's... Look, our situation is not the situation in Nehemiah 5. Like, I don't think anybody's in, loaned anybody money in here and is charging them some exorbitant interest rate. And I don't think anybody has sold their child into slavery to another person in here. (laughs) If that has happened, we've got far more issues than I realize. But look, that's not our issue. But you see what the application is for us today is it's how we treat each other that absolutely means everything. And so I end with this, guys. I end with this. Do not take this as a message of me getting up here and just beating on you saying, look, we've, we've got to do better. Look, we've got to do better because, look, we can't do better. 
don't let this become some moralistic thing to guilt you into being a little bit better of a church member. Like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that for people to live together in this way, that they are so gracious to one another, and they are so full of love, and so full of honesty, and so full of openness, is impossible. We can't do it. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. But because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, and for those of us who have repented of our inadequacy and our sin and our self-reliance and our self-absorption and our ignorance and our pettiness and our insecurities, and we repent of that and we trust that Jesus has done what we could not do for us and receive not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the, the righteousness of Christ and we receive his spirit that dwells in us, then because of what Jesus did, we can now work towards us. Doing that, making that transaction, repenting and believing is called salvation. And then now living because of what Jesus gives you through his spirit and through his righteousness is now called sanctification. So now you live this life of trying to live this out, not because if you do this, you will someday be accepted by God, but because Jesus has accepted you if you're a Christian and you now can struggle with this with other Christians who are imperfect, who are trying to do the very same thing. And when Christians do that together in a little city called the church, a beautiful aroma of Christ rises from that place. And it becomes, dare I say, irresistible to a lost world. And that's, like, that's evangelism, man. That's evangelism. Who would have thought that being gracious to one another is a form of group evangelism? Because people are attracted to it. Let me read this scripture, and then let's respond. It's in Psalm 133. It is Psalm 133. King David writes this. He says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We are not full of strife here at this church, thanks be to God. But I think we do have some... some Ignorance due to self-absorption that we need to shake out of our garments. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. In other words, when brothers look beyond themselves and they love each other better than themselves. And as Philippians 2 says, they look out for one another's interests more than they do themselves, their own interests. And they're just as... There's this, there's this desire to, to bless one another and to live out that scripture in Romans 12. It is like, verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. It is in this place when God's people sort of dwell together in such a way when they, when they resist slander, when they resist like pettiness, when they, when they get outside of themselves, something supernatural and full of God happens. It's like the dove. It's like the Holy Spirit descends on that place and the oil of God is poured out on a place and there's just life there. Stuff grows, man. Just stuff springs up. It just happens. Fruit happens. Kids are healthy and 
parents are just straight. They got their heads on straight. And relationships are not perfect, but they're solid. And, and sinners are drawn. And, and ministries are formed. And, and people are secure. And, and money is raised so that it can be given away. And, and stuff just happens. Man, life, life forevermore when people struggle together for the sake of making the aroma of Christ, His glory, pervasive in their community. So I have two questions for you and we end. Number one, do you have, do you have some issue with somebody in this room? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, this is before you worship, come to the Father. You've got some ought, you've got some issue between you and a brother. Go, settle that issue before you come and do your religious thing. Do you have some deal? Come on, man. Is there some thorn? Is there some, is there some hurt? Is there some insecurity? Is there something? Look, who cares if we buy a building? Who cares if we have a thousand people coming? Who cares if we have a great band? Who cares if I can entertain you for 45 minutes or 50 minutes or whatever it is? Who cares if we're corroding from the inside out? Do you have an issue with a brother, maybe in this room or a sister in this room? Settle it in grace and peace. That's question number one. Question number two. Are you ignorant because of self-absorption? Do you hang with the people you grew up with? Do you have coffee at the same trendy coffee places where all the cute people have coffee at? I'm not saying stop doing those things. I'm saying enlarge your circle for the sake of of the glory of Christ. And I'm not saying to do this so that you will be better. I'm saying that because Jesus was the best and only one who could live like this, let's repent of our sin or our self-absorption or our pettiness. And let's live this way because Jesus empowers us to live this way for his glory. What a joy that is. What a joy that is. By the way, I fall into both of those categories. I'm petty and I'm insecure. And I'm ignorantly self-absorbed. So join me in repenting and asking Jesus to help us. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the good news that is first bad news. And that is that we, in and of ourselves, can do none of this on our own. In fact, we're utter and complete failures in our own strength. But because Jesus lived this way, with perfection, and because he died as a sacrifice to absorb your punishment for us not living this way, and because... He satisfied your wrath that should have been ours on a cross. And then because he rose again in victory over sin and death and consequences. And then he gave us his Holy Spirit to live in us. Because of that, let us struggle together in an honest, straightforward, grace-filled way to live like this. And God, if there's somebody in this room who doesn't know Jesus, would you 
help them realize that it's not an issue of just doing better, but what they must do now is to repent of self-reliance and moralism and trust in what Jesus did. They must repent of their sin. Everybody in this room has sin that is worthy of the wrath of God. But what separates us from receiving that wrath of God or not receiving that wrath of God is whether or not we have received Jesus as the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And so if you have not done that today, you need to do that. You don't do that by filling out a card or praying some trick prayer or raising your hand or coming down, although those things may be helpful in getting you to that process. But you do that by repenting, which means turning from sin and self-reliance, which is a very serious matter like with, without Look, in and of ourselves, we will die and God will judge us and His wrath will consume us. I know that's an unpopular message, but it's the Bible and it's true. And, and so how you do this, you repent of that and you say, I believe in what Jesus... Do you have to understand everything? No, you don't have to understand hardly anything at all other than the fact that you can't do it, but Jesus did do it. And your only access back to right relationship with God is trusting in what Jesus did for you. And so the biblical answer is, how are you saved? Is to repent and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe. And when you do that, you're born again, the Bible says. That may be you. Do that right now. Just repent and believe. and Pray that Christ would come in and change your heart and give you a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh and cause you to be born again. If you need somebody to talk to afterwards, I'd love to. There's a few other folks will be down here you know somebody that you can talk to do that the rest of us I think we just need to let this this sit on us and say God help us do this do I have some petty insecurity some ought against a brother that I'm holding some offense that is killing me Jesus give us the discipline the courage to handle it to be honest and then God shake us from self-absorbed ignorance And let us be people that get outside of our comfortable little circles so that the aroma of Christ can rest in our city. So that you can use our city of Crosspoint to bless a city that's lost and needs Jesus. And I pray this in the great and glorious name of Jesus.